Section three of Bush Studies by Barbara Bainton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Scrammy and Along the selvage of the scrub girt plain, the old man looked long and earnestly. His eyes followed an indistinct track that had been cut by the cart, journeying at rare intervals to the distant township. At dawn, some weeks back, it had creaked across the plain, and at a point where the scrub curved, the husband had stopped the horse, while the woman parted the tilt and waved good-bye to the bent, irresponsive old man and his dog. It was her impending motherhood that had made them seek the comparative civilization of the township, and the tenderness of her womanhood brought the old man closer to her as they drove away. Every week since that morning had been carefully notched by man and dog, and the last mark, cut three nights past, showed that time was up. Twice this evening he thought he saw the dust rise as he looked, but longer scrutiny showed only the misty evening light. He turned to where a house stood out from a background of scrub. Beside the calf pen near it, a cow gave answer and greeting to the penned calf. "'No use pennin' up the calf,' he muttered. "'When they don't come, won't do it tomorrow night.' He watched anxiously along the scrub. "'Calf must have got his head through their rails and sucked her. No one else can't have done it. Scrammy's gone. Tant Scrammy. But the gloom of fear settled on his wizened face as he shuffled stiffly towards the sheepyard. His body jerked. There was a suggestion of the dog in his movements. And in the dog, as he rounded up the sheep, more than a suggestion of his master. He querulously accused the dog of rushin' em, stead o' allowin' Billy, the leader, to lead em. When they were yarded, he found fault with the hurdles. Someone had been meddling with them. For two pins he would smash em up with their axe. The eyes of the sheep reflected the haze-opposed glory of the setting sun. Loyally they stood till a grey quilt swathed them. In their eyes glistened luminous tears, materialised from an atmosphere of size. The wide plain gauzed into a sea on which the hut floated lonely. Through its open door a fire gleamed like the red steaming mouth of an engine. Beyond the hut a clump of miles loomed spectral and wraith-like, and round them a gang of crows cawed noisily, irreverent of the great silence. Inside the hut the old man, still querulous, talked to the listening dog. He uncovered a cabbage-tree hat, his task of the past year, and laid upside down on the centre of the crown a star-shaped button that the woman had worked for him. "'It's all wrong, see?' the dog said he did. "'Twon't do!' he shouted with the emphasis of deafness. The dog admitted it would not. "'And she done it like that to spile it on me a purpose. She done it out jealousy, cause I was making it for him. Could have done it better myself, though I am no hand at fancy stitching. But she can't make out like that. No woman could.' They are no good. The dog did not dispute this condemnation. I told her to put her anchor just there, he continued. He pointed to the middle of the button which he still held upside down. That's no anchor. The dog subtly indicated that there was another side to the button. There ain't, shouted the old man. What do you know about an anchor? You never seen a real one on a ship in your life. There was an inaudible disparaging reference to impotent colonials, which seemed to crush the dog. To mollify him, the man got on his knees, and bending his neck, 
showed the dog a faded acre on the top of the cabbage tree hat on his head. A little resentment would have served the dog, but he was too eager for peace. Noting this, the old man returned to the button for reminiscences. And yet you thought at first a thing like that would do. There was a sign of dissent from the dog. You know you did, sir. And what's more, you don't bark at her like you used to. The dog was uneasy, and intimated that he would prefer to have that past buried. None of that now. You know you don't. Bending the button, he continued. They can't never do anything right, and always continually they get a man into trouble. He had accidentally turned the button. He reversed it, looking swiftly at the dog. Can't do nothing with it, a thing like that. Might as well fling it in the fire. He put it carefully away. Where's he now? he asked abruptly. The dog indicated the route taken by the cart. And how long has he been away? The dog looked at the tally stick hanging on the wall. Yes, all that time. What does he care about me and you now he's got her? He was fussed right before he got her. Wish I had a gone down that time he took their sheep. I'd a seen no woman didn't grab him. They're stuck away down there and us all alone here by ourselves with only their sheep. Scrammy says he wouldn't stay if he was me. Says there any signs of them coming back? While the dog was out, he hastily tried to fix the button, but failed. Any mist, no dust? he asked, when his messenger returned. No fear, he growled. He won't come back no more. Stay down there and nuss the baby. It'll be a gal too. Sure to be. Women are always having girls. It'll be a gal sure enough. He looked sternly at the unagreeing dog. You don't think so? Course you don't. You on her side. Yeah, Lou. The dog's name was Waterloo, Waterloo, and had three abbreviations. Now then, war, meant mutual understanding and perfect fellowship. What's that, water? Meant serious business. But Lou was ever sorrowfully reminiscent, and accordingly Lou was now much affected and disconcerted by the steady accusing eyes of the old man. And what's more, he continued, I believe you'll fool round. You'll fool around a wasser, nor ever when she comes back with their babby. At this grave charge, the dog, either from dignity or injury, was silent. His master slowly, and with some additions, repeated the prophecy, and again the dog gave him only silent attention. Here she comes with the babby, he cried, flinging up his arms in clumsy feigned surprise. Lou was not deceived, and stood still. Oh, I'm an old liar, am I? It's come to that, is it? Well, better for I to be a liar and for you to lose your manners, sir. In vain, Lou protested. His master turned round, and when poor Lou faced that way, he drew his feet under him on the bunk and faced the wall. When the distressed Lou, from outside the hut, caught his eye through the cracks, he closed his own to stifle remorse at the eloquent, dumb appeal. Usually their little differences took some time to evaporate. The master sulked with his silent mate till some daring feat with snake or dingo on the dog's part mollified him. Lou, probably on the lookout for such foes, moved to the end of the hut nearest the sheep. Two hasty squints revealed his departure, but not his whereabouts, to the old man, 
who coughed and waited, but for once expected too much from poor Lou. His legs grew cramped. Still he did not care to make the first move. It was a godsend when an undemonstrative ewe and a demonstrative lamb came in. Before that ewe he held the whole of her disgraceful past, and under the circumstances, er impudence, er blasted impudence, in unceremoniously intruding on his privacy with her blanky blind udder, and more than blanky bastard, was something he could not and would not stand. None of your sauce now he jumped down and shook his fist at the unashamed silent mother water he shouted water put em out water did so and when he came back his master explained to him that the thing that continually and always upset him was that damn old yell it was the only sorrow he had or ever would have in life she wasn't natural that old yell there was something in the bible he told war about yells with barren udders, and twined as though she didn't know, for that was her third lamb he had had to potty. But not another bite would he give this one. He had made up his mind now, though it had been worritin' him all day. Just look at me, showing his lamb-bitten fingers, wantin' to get blood out or a stone. He shambled round, covered the cabbage-tree hat, and the despised woman worked button carefully. Then his better nature prevailed. See here, and there was that in his voice that indicated a moral victory. He took off the cloth and placed the button right side up and in its proper place. Will that do ya? he asked. After this surrender, his excitement was so great that the dog shared it. He advised War to lie down and have a spell, and in strong agitation he went round the sheepyard twice, each time stopping to hammer down the hurdles noisily and calling to war not to worry it that's all right now and firm as a rock through these proceedings the ewe and lamb followed him the lamb lamb fashion mixing itself with his legs he had nothing further to say to the ewe but from the expression of her eyes she still had an open mind towards him both went with him inside the hut were they intruders the dog asked he coughed and affected not to hear went to the door, looked out, and said the mist was gone, but the dog re-asked. "'I think, War, there's some of that awkward little damn fool's grub left,' he said, gently extricating the lamb from between his legs, "'and it'll only spoil. Just this once, and no more, mind you, and then you skiddy-addy,' he said to the ewe. He carried the lamb outside, for he would not finger-suckle it that night before Waterloo. From his bunkhead he took an axe, cut in two a mile log, and brought in half. He threw it on the fire for a backlog, first scraping the live coals and ashes to a heap for his damper. He filled and trimmed his slush lamp, and from a series of flat pockets hanging on the wall he took thread, needle, and beeswax. He hung a white cloth in a way that defined the eye of the needle, which he held at long range, but vary as he would from long to longest, the thread remained in one hand, the needle in the other. Needle, thread, light. Everything was wrong. He told War. As for me, thank a Lord I can see, and ye as well as ever I could. Am, War, see any change? War said there had been no change observable to him. There ain't no change in you, neither, War, he said in gratitude to the grizzled old dog. But he felt that War had been disappointed at his failure 
and he promised that he would rise betimes to-morrow and sew on the button by daylight. "'Never mind, War. Like to see him after supper?' Comradeship was never by speech better demonstrated. From the middle beam the old man untied two bags. Boiled mutton was in one, and the heel of a damper in another. "'No blowy can't get in there, eh?' The dog looked at the meat uncritically, but critically noted the resting place of two disturbed blowies. "'No bones!' He had taken great care to omit them. "'Now!' As ever, War took his word. He caught and swallowed, instantly several pieces flung to him. At the finish his master's, any, referred to bones. War's grateful eyes twinkled. Not a one. Never is now. Had reference to a trouble War had had with one long ago. It was time now for his own supper, but after a few attempts he shaped it. Blessed if I haven't forgot to bile the billy. Funny of me to forget. He held his head for a moment, then filled the billy and in a strange uncertainty went towards and from the fire with it, and in the end War thought there was no sense at all in putting it so far from the blaze when it had to boil. "'Tell you what, War, while it biles I'll count em. Give me appetite, eh, More? War thought countin' em was the tonic. Then together they closed the door, spread a kangaroo skin on the floor, and put the slush lamp where the light fell on it. The man sat down, and so did War took off his belt, turned it carefully, tenderly, and opened his knife to cut the stitching. This was a tedious process, for it was wax thread, and had been crossed and recrossed. Then came the chink of the coins falling. The old man counted each as it rolled out, and the dog tallied with a paw. "'No more?' "'Certainly more,' said War. A jerk, tenderly calculated, brought another among the seductive heap. "'All?' No, still the upraised paw. The old man chuckled. Olin gets more bescratchin'. This was the dog's opinion, and a series of little undulations produced another, and after still further shaking, yet another. War was asked with ridiculous insincerity. All? And with ridiculous sincerity, his solemn eyes and dropped paw said, All. Then there was the honest count straight through, Next, the sideshow, with its pretense of disrememberin', or doubts as to the number, doubts never laid except by a double count. In the first, so intent was the man that he forgot his mate, though his relief in being good friends again had made him ignore his fear. But the dog had heard an outside sound, and moving to the door, waited for certainty. At this stage the man missed his mate's eyes. He lay face downward, covering his treasure, when he realised that his friend was uneasy, and as the dog kept watch, he thrust them back hurriedly, missing all the pleasures and excitements of a final recount. With dumb show he asked several questions of his sentinel, and took his answers from his eyes. Then, when Warder, relieved, began to walk about, the old man with forced confidence chafed him. He sought refuge from his own fears by trying to banish the dogs, and suggested dingoes at the sheepyard, or a goanna on the roof. "'Well, twas possum,' he said, making a pretense of even then hearing and distinguishing the sound. But round his waist the belt did not go that night. Only its bulk, in his life of solitariness, could have conceived its hiding-place. 
He bustled around as one having many tasks, but these he did aimlessly. With a pretense of unconcern he attempted to hum, but broke off frequently to listen. He was plainly afraid of the dog's keen ears missing something, but his mate's tense body proclaimed him on duty. "'I know who you thought it was, Warder. They were sitting side by side, yet he spoke very loudly. "'Scrammy and him? He had guessed correctly. "'And you thought you'd see him last night?' He was right again. "'And you thought twas him that had been ransacking the place yesterday when we were shepherding? "'And you thought must have been him shook the tommy?' The dog's manner evinced that he had not altered this opinion. The old man's heart beat loudly. "'No fear, Warder. Scrammy's gone. Gone long ways now, Warder.' But Warder's pricked ears, doing double duty, showed he was unconvinced. "'Sides, Scrammy wouldn't hurt a mosquito,' he continued. "'Poor old Scrammy. Twan him shook the tommy, Warder.' The dog seemed to be waiting for the suggestion of another thief having unseen crept into their isolated lives, but his master had none to offer. Both were silent. Then the man piled wood on the fire, remarking that he was going to sit up all night. He asked the dog to go with him to the table to feed and trim the slush lamp. Those quavering shadows along the wall were caused by its sizzling flare, flickering in the darkness, the dog explained. "'Thought it might have been the blacks outside,' the man said. "'They ain't so far away, I know. To them killed the lamb down in the creek.' He spoke unusually loudly. He hoped they wouldn't catch poor old one-handed Scrammy. He said how sorry he was for poor old Scrammy, cause Scrammy wouldn't hurt no one. He only just came to see us cause he was a old friend. He was gone a long ways to look for work, cause he was stony broke after blowing his check at their shanty sixty miles away. I told him, he continued in an altered voice, that I couldn't lend him any, cause I had sent all my little bit of money, he whispered money, to the bank be the boss. Didn't I? Emphatically his mate intimated that this was the case. He held his head in his shaking hands, and complained to the dog of having come over dizzy. He was silent for a few moments, then, abruptly raising his voice, he remarked that their master was a better tracker than saddle-strap Jimmy, or any of the blacks. He looked at the tally-stick and suddenly announced that he knew for a certainty that the boss and his wife would return that night, or early next morning and that he must see about making them a damper. He got up and began laboriously to mix soda and salt with the flour. He looked at the muddy-coloured water in the bucket near the wall, and altered his mind. "'I'll bile it first, War, same as her does, cause just now and then today I comes over dizzy-like. See the misters even. Two more, then rain, rain, and them two out in it with no tilt on the cart.' He sat down for a moment even before he dusted his ungoverned flowery hands. Fine a tea, War, just to warm their worms and lift me out, eh? Every movement of the dog was in accord with his plan. His master looked at the billy and said, Fine boilin', and that a watched pot never boiled. He rested a while silently with his flowery hands covering his face. He bent his mouth to the dog's ear and whispered, Water, before replying, pointed his ears and raised his head. The old man's hand rested on the dog's neck. "'Tell you what, War, while it's bilin', 
I'll have another go at their button, cause I want to give em there as soon as he comes. Suppose they'll all come. He had sat down again and seemed to whistle his words. Think they'll all come, Lou? Lou would not commit himself about all, not being quite sure of his master's mind. The old man's mouth twitched. A violent effort jerked him. Might be a boy after all. Ain't cocky sure. His head wagged irresponsibly, and his hat fell off as he rolled into the bunk. He made no effort to replace it, and for once, unheeded, the fire flickered on his polished head. Never before had the dog seen its baldness. The change from nightcap to hat had always been effected out of his sight. Or, ain't cocky sure it'll be a gal? The dog discreetly, or modestly, dropped his eyes, but his master had not done with concessions. Water! Water looked at him. You can go every Sunday evening, and see if tis a boy. He turned over on his side, with his face to the wall. Into the gnarled, uncontrolled hand, swaying over the bunk, the dog laid his paw. When the old man got up, he didn't put on his hat, nor even pick it up. Altogether, there was an unusualness about him tonight that distressed his mate. He sat up after a few moments, and threw back his head, listening strainingly for outside sounds. The silence soothed him, and he lay down again. A faded look was in his eyes. "'Thought I heard bells, church bells,' he said to the dog, looking up too, but at him. "'Couldn't have. No church bells in the bush. Ain't heard em since I left the old country.' He turned his best ear to the fancied sound. He had left his dog and the hut, and was dreaming of shadowy days. He raised himself from the bunk, and followed the dog's eyes to a little smoke-stained bottle on the shelf. "'No, no, war,' he said. "'That's for sickness. Must be a lot worser than what I am.' Breathing noisily, he went through a list of diseases, among which were palsy, snake-bites, dropsy and sudden death, before he would be justified in taking the last of his painkiller. His pipe was in his hidden belt, but he had another in one of those little pockets. He tried it, said, "'Twouldn't draw and very slowly and clumsily stripped the edge of a cabbage-tree frond hanging from the rafter, and tried to push it through the stem, but could not find the opening. He explained to the intent dog that the hole was stopped up, but it didn't matter. He placed it under the bunk where he sat, because first he would have a swig of tea. His head kept wagging at the billy. No, until the billy boiled, he was going to have a little snooze. The dog was to keep quiet until the billy boiled. Involuntarily he murmured, looking at his mate, Funny, where the tommyhawk's gone to? Then he missed the axe. My God, Warder, he said. I left the axe outside. Clean forgot it. This discovery alarmed the dog, and he suggested they should bring it in. No, no, he said, and his flowery face grew ghastly. He stood still. All his faculties seemed paralysed for a time, then fell stiffly on his bunk. Quite suddenly he staggered to his feet, rubbed his eyes, and between broken breaths he complained of the bad light, and that the mist had come again. One thing the dog did when he saw his master's face, even by that indifferent light, he barked low and terribly human. The old man motioned for silence. Ah, 
His jaw fell, but only for a moment. Then a steely grimness took possession. He clung to the table and beckoned the dog with one crooked finger. Scrammy? Cunningly, cautiously, indicating outside, and as subtly the dog replied. Then he groped for his bunk and lay with his eyes fixed on the billy, his mouth open. He brought his palms together after a while. Cline our arts to keep this law, he whispered, and for a moment his eyes rested on the hiding place, then turned to the dog. And though soon after there was a sinister sound outside, which the watchful dog immediately challenged, the man on the bunk lay undisturbed. Warder, growling savagely, went along the back wall of the hut, and despite the semi-darkness, his eyes, scintillating with menace through the cracks, drove from them a crouching figure, who turned hastily to grip the axe near the mile-logs. He stumbled over the lamb's feeding-pan lying in the hut's shadow. The moonlight glittering on the blade recalled the menace of the dog's eyes. The man grabbed the weapon swiftly, but even with it he felt the chances were unequal. But he had planned to fix the dog. He would unpen the sheep, and the lurking dingoes, coming up from the creek to worry the lambs, would prove work for the dog. He crouched silently to again deceive this man and dog, and crept towards the sheepyard. But the hurdles of the yard faced the hut and the way those thousand eyes reflected the rising moon was disconcerting. The whole of the night seemed pregnant with eyes. All the shadows were slanting the wrong way, and the moon was facing him, with its man calmly watching every movement. It would be dawn before it set. He backed from the yard to the mile's scant screen. Even they had molted with age. From under his coat the handle of the axe protruded, his mind worked his body. Hugging the axe, he crept towards some object, straightened himself to reach, then with the hook on his handless arm, drew back an imaginary bolt, and stooping, entered. With the axe in readiness, he crept to the bunk. Twice he raised it, and struck. It was easy enough out there, yet even in imagination his skin was wet and his mouth was dry. Even if the man slept, there was the dog. He must risk letting out the sheep. He covered the blade of the axe and went in a circuit to the sheep, and got over the yard on the side opposite to the hut. They rushed from him and huddled together, leaving him, although stooping, exposed. He had calculated for this, but not for the effect upon himself. Could they in the hut see him, he would be no match for the dog, even with the axe. Heedlessly, fear-driven, he rushed to where he could see the door, regardless of exposing himself. Nothing counted now but that the dog or the old man should not steal upon him unawares. The door was still closed. No call for water came from it, though he stood there a conspicuous object. While he watched, he saw a ewe lamb make for the hut's shelter. He stooped, still watching, and listened, but could hear nothing. He crept forward and loosened the hurdles. Never were they noisier, he was sure. He knew that the sheep would not go through while he was there. He crept away. But although the leader noted the freed exit, he and those he led were creatures of habit. None were hungry, and they were unused to feeding at night, though in the morning came man and dog never so early 
they were waiting. Round the yard and past the gateway he drove them again and again. He began to feel impotently frenzied in the fear that the extraordinary lightness meant that daylight must be near. Every moment he persuaded himself that he could see more plainly, he held out his one hand and was convinced. He straightened himself, rushed among them, caught one, and ran it kicking through the opening. It came back the moment he freed it, however it served his purpose, for as he crouched there, baffled, he unexpectedly saw them file out. Then they rushed through, in an impatient, struggling crowd, each fearing to be last with this invader. When he barrowed out the first, he had kept his eyes on the hut, and had seen an old ewe and lamb run to it, and bunt the closed door. But if there was any movement inside, the noise of the nearer sheep killed it. They were all around the hut, for above it hung the moon, and they all made for the light. He crept after them, his ears straining for sound, but his head bobbing above them to watch the still-closed door. Inside, long since, the backlog had split with an explosion that scattered the coals near enough to cause the billy to boil, and the blaze showed the old man's eyes set on the billy. The dog looked into them, then laid his head between his paws, and still watching his master's face, beat the ground with his tail. He whined softly, and went back to his post at the door, his eyes snapping flintily, his teeth bared. Along his back the hair rose like bristles. He sent an assurance of help to the importunate ewe and lamb. As the sheep neared the hut, he ran to the bunk, raised his head to a level with his master's, and barked softly. He waited, and despite the eager light in his intelligent face, his master and mate did not ask him any questions as to the cause of these calling sheep. Why did he not rise, and with him riard them, then gloatingly ask him where was the chinky crow by day, or sneaking dingo by night, that was any match for them, and then demand from his four-footed trusty mate the usual straightforward answer? Was there to be no discussion as to which heard the noise first, nor the final compromise of a dead heat? The silence puzzled the man outside sorely. He crouched, watching both door and shutter. The sheep were all round the hut. Man and dog inside must hear them. Why, when a dingo came that night he camped with them. They heard it before it could reach a lamb. If only he had known then what he knew now. His hold on the axe tightened. No one had seen him come. None should see him go. Why didn't that old fellow wake to-night? For now, as he crept nearer the hut, he could hear the whining dog, and understood he was appealing to his master. He lay flat on the ground and tried to puzzle it out. The sheep had rushed back, disorganised, and were again near the hut and yard. Both inside must know. They were waiting for him. They were preparing for him, and that was why they were letting the dingoes play up with the sheep. That was the reason they did not openly show fight. Still, he would have sacrificed half of the coveted wealth to be absolutely certain of what their silence meant. It was surely almost daylight. He spread out the fingers of his one hand. He could see the colour of the blood in the veins. He must act quickly, or he would have to hide about for another day. And the absent man might return. To encourage himself, he tried to imagine the possession of that glittering heap that he had seen them counting on the mat. 
yet he had grown cold and dejected, and felt for the first time the weight of the axe. It would be all right if the door would open, the old man come out and send the dog to round up the sheep. It was getting daylight, and soon shelter would be impossible. He crept towards the hut, and this time he felt the edge of the axe. Right and left the sheep parted. There was nothing to be gained now in crawling, for the hostility of the dog told him that he could be seen. He stood, his body stiffened with determination. Mechanically he went to the door. He knew the defensive resources of the hut. He had the axe, and the stolen tomahawk was stuck in the fork of those miles. He had no need for both. The only weapon that the old fellow had was the useless butcher's knife. His eyes protruded, and unconsciously he felt his stiffened beard. He breathed without movement. There was no sound now from man or dog. In his mind he saw them waiting for him to attack the door. This he did not debate nor alter. He went to the shutter, ran the axe's edge along the hide hinges, pushed it in, then stepped back. Immediately the dog's head appeared. He growled no protest, but the flinty fire from his eyes and the heat of his suppressed breath, hissing between his bared fangs, revealed to Scrammy that in this contest, despite the axe, his one hand was a serious handicap. With the first blow his senses quickened. The slush lamp had gone out, and there was no hint of daylight inside. This he noted between his blows at the dog, as he looked for his victim. It was strange the old fellow did not show fight. Where was he hiding? Was it possible that, scenting danger, he had slipped out? He recalled the dog's warning when his master was counting his hoard. The memory of that chinking, belt-hidden pile dominated greedily. Had the old man escaped? He would search the hut. What were fifty dogs' teeth? In close quarters he would do for him with one blow. He was breathing now in deep gasps. The keen edge of the axe severed the hide-hinged door. He rushed it, then stood back, swinging the axe in readiness. It did not fall, for the bolt still held it. But this was only what a child would consider a barrier. One blow with the axe-head smashed the bolt. The door fell across the head of the bunk, the end partly blocking the entrance. He struck a side blow that sent it along the bunk. The dog was dreadfully distressed. The bushman outside thought the cause the fallen door. Face to face they met. Determined battle in the dog's eyes met murder in the man's. He brandished an axe circuit craned his neck, and by the dull light of the fire searched the hut. He saw no one but the dog. Unless his master was under the bunk, he had escaped. The whole plot broke on him quite suddenly. The cunning old miser, knowing his dog would show his flight by following, had locked him in, and he had wasted all this time barking up the wrong tree. He would have done the old man to death that minute with fifty brutal blows, he would kill him by day or night. He ran round the brush sheepyard, kicking and thrusting the axe through the thickest parts. He had not hidden there, nor among the mile clump where he had practised his bloody plot. The dog stood in the doorway of the hut. He saw this as he passed through the sheep on his way to search the creek. He was half-minded to try to invite the dog's confidence and cooperation by yarding them. He looked at them 
and the moonlight's undulating white scales across their shorn backs brought out the fresh tar brand eight setting him thinking of the links of that convict gang-chain long ago lord how light it must be for him to see that he held out his hand again there was no perceptible change in the light there were hours yet before daylight he moulded his mind to that the creek split the plain and along it here and there a few she-oak blots defined it he traversed it with his eyes there were no likely hiding places among the trees and it would be useless to search them suddenly it struck him that the old man might be creeping along with the sheep they were so used to him he ran and headed them driving them swiftly back to the yard before they were in he knew he was wrong again he turned and scanned the creek but felt no impulse to search it it was half a mile from the hut it was impossible that the old man could have got there or that he could have reached the more distant house besides why did the dog stay at the door unless on guard he ran back to the hut the dog was still there and in no way appeased by the yarding or the sheep he swore at the threatening brute and cast about for a gibber to throw but stones were almost unknown there a sapling would save him seven or eight mile logs lay near for firewood but all were too thick to be wielded there was only the clump of miles and the few stunted she-oaks bordering the distant creek to reach either would mean a dangerous delay oh by god he had it these poles keeping down the bark roof he ran to the back of the hut cut a step in the slab and putting his foot in it hitched the axe on one of the desired poles and was up in a moment he could hear the cabbage fronds hanging from the rafters shiver with the vibration but there was no other protest from inside he shifted a sheet of rotten bark part of it crumbled and fell inside on the prostrate door sounding like the first earth on a coffin in a way that the dog particularly resented he knelt and carefully eyed the interior the dog's glittering eyes met his the door lay as it had fallen along the bunk the fire was lightless yet he could see more plainly but the cause was not manifest till from the miles quite close the jackasses chorused from his post the dog sent them a signal quite unaccountably the man's muscles relaxed oh christ he said dropping the pole he sprang up and faced the east then turned to the traitorous faded moon the daylight had come the sweat stung his quivering body slowly he made an eye circuit round the plain no human being was in sight all he had to face was a pair of noisy jackasses and a barking dog he would soon silence the dog he took the pole and made a jab at the whelping brute one thing he noticed that if he did get one home it was only when he worked near the horizontal door his quickened senses guessed at the reason he could have shifted the door easily with his pole yet feared because if the old man were under he would expose himself to two active enemies he must get to close quarters with the dog and chop him in two or brain him with the axe he ripped off another sheet of bark and smashed away a batten that broke his swing encircling a rafter with his hooked arm he lay flat his feet pressing another just over the bunk because only there would the dog hold his ground one blow well directed got home he planted his feet firmly and made another 
with such tremendous force that his support snapped. He let go the axe, and it fell on the door. He gripped with his hands the rafter nearest, but strain as he would, he could not balance his body. He hung over the door, and the dog sprang at him and dragged him down. In bitten agony he dropped on the door that instantly upended. It was daylight, and in that light the power of those open eyes set in that bald head, fixed on the billy beside the dead fireplace, was mightier than the dog. His unmaimed hand had the strength of both. He lifted the door, and shielded himself with it as he backed out. But that was not all the dog wanted. At the doorway he waited to see that the fleeing man held no further designs on the sheep. It was time they were feeding. Though the hurdles were down, even from the doorway the dog was their master. He waited for commands from his, and barked them back till noon. Several times that day the ewe and lamb came in, looked without speculation at the figure on the bunk, then moved to the dead fireplace. But though the water in the billy was cold, the dog would not allow either to touch it. That was for tea when his master awoke. There was another circumstance. Those blowflies were welcome to the uncovered mutton. Throughout that day he gave them undisputed right, but they had to be content with it. Next day the ewe and lamb came again. The lamb bunted several irresponsive objects, never its dam's udder, barring listlessly. Though the first day the ewe had looked to the bunk and barred, she was wiser now, though sheep are slow to learn. Around that dried dish outside the lamb sniffed, baaing faintly. Adroitly the ewe led the way to the creek, and the lamb followed. From the bank the lamb looked at her, then faced round to the hut, and, barring disconsolately, trotted a few paces back. From the water's edge the mother ewe called. The lamb looked at her vacantly, and without interest descended. The ewe bent and drank sparingly, meaningly. The lamb sniffed the water, and unsatisfied, complained. The hut was hidden, but it turned that way. Again the ewe leisurely drank. This time the lamb's lips touched the water, but did not drink. Into its mouth, raised to bleat, a few drops fell. Hastily the mother's head went to the water. She did not drink, but the lamb did. Higher up, where the creek was dry, they crossed to tender grass in the billabong, then joined the flock for the first time. Through the thicker mist that afternoon, a white-tilted cart sailed joltingly, taking its bearings from the various landmarks, rather than from the undefined track. It rounded the scrub, and the woman, with her baby, kept watch for the first glimpse of her home beyond the creek. She told her husband that there was no smoke from the near shepherd's hut, but despite his uneasiness he tried to persuade her that the mist absorbed it. It was past sundown, yet the straggling unguarded sheep were running in mobs to and from the creek. Both saw the broken roof of the hut, and the man, stopping the horse some distance away, gave the woman the reins and bade her wait. He entered the hut through the broken doorway, but immediately came out to assure himself that his wife had not moved. The sight inside of that broken-ribbed dog's fight with those buzzing horrors and the reproach in his wild eyes was a memory that the man was not willing she should share. End of section 3